Welcome to the Sunday Talk podcast with Father Christopher Vaccaro, Chaplain and Director of Catholic Campus Ministry for the University of Mary, Washington. I am Kevin McGraw, Associate Campus Minister. The Sunday Talk podcast is recorded each week from the St. John Bosco Center, the home of the Catholic Campus Ministry at the University of Mary, Washington. It occurs on Sundays at 7.30 p.m. at the St. John Bosco Center. For fall 2020, Father Vaccaro is presenting on the series, The Beauty and Effect of the Sacraments of the Church. In this first episode, Father Vaccaro provides a general introduction to the understanding of how the sacraments are essential for our spiritual life and in the life of missionary discipleship in the church. Now, here is Father Vaccaro. All right, David, cue the music. There's our theme song for the end. Now, is anyone on there? So that I'm, there's no one on there. Yes. Yeah. 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 Two people. Okay, great. Very good. Let us pray. I know what's going to happen here. I'm going to get carried away and this, this thing is going to pop. I, I just know it. Don't worry about it, Colin. Okay. Name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was at the beginning, it is now, and it shall be, world without end. Amen. St. John Bosco, pray for us. St. Dominic Savio, pray for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, John Bosco, a little introduction here. We've learned a lot about him over the, uh, the years, but John Bosco uh, started, obviously, these oratories in Turin and the surrounding areas. And Dominic Savio met him uh, when he was, I believe, 12 years old and requested entrance into one of the oratories. And John Bosco was very impressed by his life, admitted him in. And uh, Dominic Savio died uh, several years later. He died at 14 or 16. John's blank right now. But uh, Dominic uh, John, Don Bosco wrote uh, a biography of Dominic Savio, uh, talking about his book, telling about his uh, great faith and whatnot. So it was um, our second house over there is named after Dominic Savio. So I'll give a little bit more in his life. Uh, as the year goes on, but I want to know why we, you all to know why we invoked him. Our uh, series this semester is going to be on the sacraments, so tonight will be a uh, sort of an introduction to the nature of sacraments and why we're having this uh, sort of talk where the understanding of the sacraments. And uh, then next week uh, we'll go into baptism, and basically we're taking each sacrament one week. Now, this assumes we get through the semester, okay? So, uh, if for some reason uh, we don't finish, I think what I'm probably going to do is just hold instead of trying to uh, get together on Sunday nights with a random group and try to uh, alert time. We'll just stop where we're at and pick up. Hopefully we'll get through all of this, but we, I think we set it up where there's enough for tonight the seven sacraments, and then we have a night for uh, question and answer. Um, 
at the end. Is it the last week that's the question and answer? Correct. Right. Yep. For those joining online, whoever you are, do you know who they are, uh, Claire? Oh, I Oh, no names? Okay. Well, I was going to welcome them to our group, but since we can't tell who you are, know that you're uh, welcome here anyway. So when you hear the topic, like when I picked this, because I was thinking about a good topic to do, we, we usually do dating, which is always very popular. A theology of the body was popular. Uh, and some people wanted to go through that again, because it's always good to sort of go over it again and again. But this year I wanted to focus on the sacraments, if we can get them done, and then next semester apologetics, which is showing the reasonableness for faith. The reason is, the more the, and, and surveys back this up, uh, my conversations with people back this up, your conversations probably with your people back it up, and many times people's understanding themselves, people really, particularly the young, they really don't have any substantive knowledge of what we believe as Christians. And you may say, I take offense to that. It's not meant to offend you. When you ask people things, they, they have what I call, if they have any uh, formation in the faith. So I mean, went to Catholic school for eight years, maybe 12. CCD, which is the other one people do, you know, religious education. When I'm interacting with people and I ask them basic questions, like here's two questions I like to begin by. I offer to meet with people. So over the years, I've walked with people and I'll say, what do we need? So someone will be sitting in my office and I'll say, so why are you a Catholic? What's the reason you're a Catholic? And I say, no pressure. You take a moment to think so that it's not something where they need to like have an answer immediately. Without fail, the answer usually is one of the two following things. I don't know, or because my parents are Catholic. And that's after they've had a minute to think about it. Now, I would hope that if someone came up to you and said, like, why are you a Mary Washington student? That you give more that's like, don't know, because you know, it was one of the schools I got into. Or my parents told me I needed to go to college. And I think we can all agree, if that were the kind of answer that everyone gave over and over, we'd ask, why are we investing the kind of money that we're giving to go to a school we have no idea why we're there. We don't have anything beyond something that I would say is a superficial answer to you know, a reason for why we do things. Most people, when you ask about college, will say either they got a scholarship in a certain amount, they want to study a particular thing, a certain activities they're involved in, whatever it may be, and they can go on for 10, 15 minutes explaining all the different things. I toured five schools. This was the one I like the best, the location is the best, blah, 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 they keep going. When you speak to people about faith, it stops cold very quickly. Now, the issue that I think about is I say, college is for four years. When we speak about faith, we're dealing with something that it's supposed to be. And what many people will say is, even though they can't explain it, the core of what they, they are about and something that is to lead us into eternity. And what happens is very similar to what you see. Now, and no insult to those who aren't here, but I'm going to make a point. We have, what, 40 people at Mass now? Granted, you know, people may have homework. 
we maybe have 10 people here. What happens is people hear faith formation and they check out. I don't want to sit through classes. I don't want to learn. I know that stuff. The fact of the matter is, though, they don't know that stuff. They don't want to admit it, though. And the only way you learn and get good at something is you sit in, a, in an educational format. Now, it doesn't need to necessarily be someone lecturing at you. But in certain disciplines, you have to receive information. It's what oftentimes people do is they say, it's lived experience. You understand faith is lived. It is lived experience. Rooted in knowledge. It doesn't do any good if faith is simply something that you're doing and you don't know why you're doing it. Look at statistics on young people with faith and the way, and also advertisements that schools put together. I often notice this even in the Catholic Herald. If you look at the Catholic high schools, they oftentimes, the average itself, they're advertising for their schools. So the next time you get, the Catholic Herald is our newspaper for Arlington. If your family gets it, Take one, when not only they're advertising out in schools and such, but come like May and then like during the summer. What often is the advertisement, so I won't say any school, but whatever school it is, they'll have, you know, Blue Ribbon School, 99% of people uh, getting into college, 96% get scholarships, we've raised 40 million, 15,000 hours of uh, uh, service. And then they have a picture of like the chapel. But service seems to be the only thing we relate now with young people in faith. You go on campus and you say to a group of people, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to D.C. and serve the homeless. Everyone rolls in. You say to someone, we're going to actually learn why we serve the homeless. Oh, I don't need to do that. I already know it. And it comes from a faulty understanding that faith is primarily a superficial emotive event. Now, there is an emotion that's in it, but in any area or discipline, when we're dealing with a science, okay, and there I mean whether it be a scientific field, like we're talking about physics and whatnot, or what are often called the social sciences, psychology, sociology, and we also put into that when we speak, even though we would call it a social science, the study of theology. Theology meaning the study of God. That's where the word uh, comes from. Then is people who are coming to know God, he reveals himself into the world so that he can be known by man who has the capacity to know God and then is able to take that understanding of God, incorporate it into his or her own being, and then be able to propagate what it is that we know about God towards other people to invite them into the relationship with them. The relationship is the activity. But if you don't know anything about who you're introducing people to, you're in trouble. That's why I use the example of someone going off to school. A better example may be the person who is entering into a relationship with someone. So one of you invites me over to dinner. So I say, well, tell me about your mom or dad. Who am I meeting? And you're like, well, it's a, a male and female. Okay. <laughs> and? Well, uh, my dad works, and my mom works too. Okay. More. <laughs> Do they cook well? What's the food going to be? What kind of conversations do they like to have? You know, where am I going to sit at the table? 
What do you do after dinner? Do you sit at the table or do you go to the living room? Do you watch TV together as a family? Who are your siblings? I mean, there's so many other things. That's the kind of questions that I call interesting questions. When you get to know someone, none of us are really interested in what I call the uninteresting questions. They're necessary. Like if you introduce someone, you go up to them and you're like, what's your name? Uh, you know, get your name, assuming you remember their name. But, and then you may say, well, how's your week? Good. But that's not really interesting. I mean, if that's all the conversation was every time I met you, I'd like, what's your name? How's your week? Okay. What really bonds us together with people is when we find things about them that are interesting. You know, someone comes up to you and says, I'm an excellent baker. Excellent. Will you bake me a cake? You know, or someone comes up and says, you know, I was in a film one year. Oh, a film. Or someone comes up and says, I can recite the alphabet backwards at like warp speed. You're like, oh, do it quickly. You know, because we're engaged by that. It's like, I don't see many people who do that. So in life, we recognize interest comes from knowledge. That's why the further you go in an area of discipline, those of you who are upperclassmen here, there's less and less people in the classes often because there's more and more people spreading out into other disciplines, giving up on the discipline you're in, and less people are as well versed in the area of expertise that you're going in to study. However, it's those people who, when you get together to talk, like if you're with other people studying biology or, you know, what's your major? Computer science. I mean, he can sit there and talk, you know, what's Java? What do you, what's the usual program? Java is his favorite. So he would sit there. I don't know anything about that. So if he started into what he knows about computer science, I'm not interested. Not because it isn't interesting, but because I know nothing about that. I need an entry-level entry class to say, what's Java? What does that mean? Is that coffee? I mean, uh, and someone's like, no, that is a programming. And then they get language that you go in. Uh, oh, okay, so that's what, then as you get knowledge, you can speak freely. Just like if I talk about, let's say, refereeing. Some of you guys probably are like, oh, we've heard enough stories about that. We feel like we're experts by now. Okay? But the thing is, if I get together with other referees, we can talk for two hours about the fine parts of officiating. No one's bored. But if you go into an environment where no one plays sports, you're like, I'd like to talk to you for the next hour or so about officiating. The person may be, may be nice, but they're going to say, I will never return there again. I don't want to talk about it. Look what we do with our faith. Right? What we do with our faith is we don't gain the knowledge where we speak like JP can speak about different uh, aspects of computer science or programming or biology or whatever field of study you're in. And instead of engaging in it in a way to say, you know, all of us as Catholic Christians should have a requisite understanding of the things of God so that I can both understand and communicate. We pretend like we know what we're about and then avoid gaining the knowledge that is needed for us really to be committed followers of the world. And that fundamentally, if you want to know, is why in our parishes now, and I don't mean 
during the pandemic. I mean, in general, remember your parish when it was full again. Why it consistently is about five to ten percent of people who actually serve the apostolate deliberately in parishes. You've got another, say, 40% who are completely disengaged. They go to Mass. I'm talking to those who go to Mass. And then you have a group of people that is going to explain to you why what they're doing is enough, even though they're not doing much at all. And to someone, and I don't mean myself, I mean anyone who's engaged, who's an expert, it would be like if I came up to you and I'm going to tell you how much I know about computer science when I don't know anything about it. How long does it take you to say this guy doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. Very quick, right? Guess what it is for a priest when someone's coming out and telling me, oh, I know all about the faith father. I went to, I studied it for eight years. You know, I've done different things. Or someone who comes up and you're like, I could really use your help and involvement in X, Y, or Z. Oh, I'm too busy. I'm like, oh, okay, I know what that means. I've been there before. I've heard this line a hundred times which enter into what we're trying to do here, which is we're trying to engage the intellect so we know what we're actually believing, so we're competent when we both speak about the sacraments, and secondarily, so that when we are understanding and experiencing the encounter with our Lord in the sacrament, we have a deeper understanding of what's going on. Part of the reason people are so disengaged and have approaches, and I don't mean just the, the Eucharist, people who never go to confession, there's a lot of people who never go to confession. They don't understand confession. People get confirmed and view it as a graduation ceremony from the eighth grade or high school, depending on what, what you know, uh, how many people here got confirmed and then never do anything else with their faith. And I meet them here at, at the college and they're like, oh, I, I, don't, I don't need to go to anything, I've already been to what I'd like to say, if I could pull off, you know, I'd say, you need to do it. I'm sorry that you received your confirmation and it didn't inflame you to do anything for the Lord like it was supposed to do. That was the reason you received that grace. It wasn't so. Here we go. I'm going to move it further. There we go. It's back on. Um, that's what we are going to speak about. And that sort of gives you an introduction into why we're going to do this. Now, I would very much appreciate, and you to all be ambassadors, so that next week we have a few more people here, not because I just need a full room when I speak. There's nothing to do with that. And everything to do with, I really like a community where we had a group of people who knew what we were doing. And if this is our primary educational element of the week, Let's, let's use it, particularly in this time when there isn't a ton going on. So think of people that you can invite, even an email, some of the Bible study, some of you men at Mass, and make a nice invitation to them. And a good way to invite people is not to say, hey, you want to come to a talk, which they obviously don't because they're not here. You'd say, I'd like to invite you to a talk that I enjoyed and I think would be helpful to you, assuming you enjoy it and you think it would be helpful, which you'll find out here shortly. Okay, the sacraments are central to the life of faith. If you think about the way sacraments are ordered, this is a very beautiful thing, they accompany the entirety of human existence on earth. You're born, and 
for many people, okay, those who have who are raised in a Christian uh, family, you're baptized soon after, at least as Catholics you are. Then, if you think about it, confirmation, if we did the order of the sacraments the way they were, the second would be the reception of Holy Communion, okay, would occur after one is confirmed and received baptism, which is the idea that one is chrismate, so we're doing the, the original order of the sacraments was baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist. Now we've inverted those, it goes baptism, Eucharist, and confirmation. Now, in the early church, the way they got inverted, just a side comment, was because the bishop often was the one who would give the sacrament confirmation. He can dispense it, but in the early church, when there was a bishop gathered with a small group of people, they, many times, you can think about it, dioceses in the early church would be very small. 50 people, 100 people, 300 people. There weren't many people who were Christian, and even then, they had a, a clumping of people. As the church grew, it became harder for that to occur. So they elongated the time in between when the bishop would come for the chrismation. And that's how it spread out further uh, and we separated the sacraments. But in the Eastern Church, a child is baptized, receives his communion, and is chrismated or receives confirmation on the same day. So what occurs is that you receive the fullness of the life of God. And then the reception of communion, remember I said it accompanies us through life. If you think about it, every time we go to Mass, we are able to be nourished by the Eucharist. It is a gift that we receive. It is the life of the Lord. But if uh, we eat food, I mean, it's a central part of our day. Everyone here eats. Sometimes one time a day, sometimes two, sometimes three, sometimes more. But we eat to sustain life. We eat the Eucharist to sustain the spiritual life. Confession. We, are, we need repentance in our lives. So our Lord needs us to forgive us so we're not bound by sin. The sacraments of vocation so that we understand our purpose in life and have a specific understanding of how we're called. Now, I would say vocation is not completely understood, even by Christians who are getting married. There are many. I can't tell you the number of times I've done wedding preparation with supposedly devout people who are clueless about what it means to be married. And by that, I mean not just there's the one group who are living completely contrary to what we, we testify to Christian belief in. But even people, when they come in and they'll say something like this, you're, they're sitting next to one another and you're speaking about sacrifice and marriage, and one person will say, I'm willing to give my 50% if you're willing to give your 50%. Anyone strike that as odd? That we give 50% in our vocations? Imagine if I said that to the bishop on the day I was ordained. I'm willing to give you a solid 50%. Whatever you need up to 50%. I'll give you eight hours a day, not a minute more. We treat jobs like that, don't we? Imagine if you enter into your vocation like that. You're selfish, right? 
you go by it, and so people do this. They don't recognize a vocation is a call. It's when when I was called. It's not just because people will say to me regularly, not, not regularly, but people be like, "You chose your vocation. You chose to be a priest." Yeah, I responded to a call. I didn't just choose in a hat like a sorting hat. Hey, I'll be a priest. It's the Lord asked me to do this, and I said yes. In marriage, the same thing goes on. We often have created, you got the guy going down on his knee, you got the ring that costs, you know, an arm and a leg. Literally, the guy shows up and he has no arm, and he's like, I just gave my arm for your ring. Okay. I wanted, here, I'll tell you this for the guy, I've always thought it would be good. Get like a Cracker Jack ring. Nobody <laughs> <laughs> need to do with that. I thought, see, this would be the kind of thing I'd do. You can, you can find a lot about a person by how they respond. So you do all the regular things. You're down the knee, you've got the roses, you have the person with the camera, and then you crank the box. <laughs> <laughs> now, I can look a little bit better than a cracker jack, but some cheap ring, and you say, I want to offer you my heart. This ring, which I don't want to place us in, me to go into a debtor's prison to get, is just a sign of that. It doesn't need to be. And see the reaction. You can have the real ring in your pocket. But if they react badly, sprint off the other way. You've saved yourself $10,000, okay? And you're set for the next time. But, but the reality is, we oftentimes do all of these exterior things. And I will be like, well, I don't need an expensive ring. You don't understand. But deep down, what we're really saying is, I need that expensive ring. And you better give me that expensive ring. And sometimes it's the guys. I don't want to put it just in the women. The guy's like, I need to treat my, my, my wife to be as a princess. She deserves this. But where is the idea that we're providing all that? Not that I'm saying we shouldn't get a nice ring. But what goes into that? I mean, I see the value of the ring, and it can be a very beautiful thing. But where's the idea of service? Where's the idea of God in that? You know, I often tell the story. My, I've said this. My sister, both of my sisters were now married. Neither had an engagement. Now, that wasn't because I told him that I did this thing. But the one, her fiance, what they did was they did all the corporal and spiritual works of mercy together. And he actually proposed to her in a graveyard. It's <laughs> a true story. Now, you may say, why would you propose in a graveyard? Well, what he did, I thought was actually very nice, is he proposed on their last praying for the living and the dead, okay? So they he proposed in a graveyard, and he gave her, instead of a, uh, an engagement ring, he gave her a medal of uh, St. Teresa uh, of Lazou's parents, okay? Zelie and Louis, who are the first canonized couple, and his symbol was, this is what the goal of marriage is. How nice isn't that much better? So she wore this nice medal of the saints, and then their honeymoon actually was over to France, to where they, they walked in the footsteps of those saints. It was actually very nice, you know, they did that, that it was done that way, and they didn't have to spend all kinds of money to come right in. Hello, Irma, I'm glad you found it, my friend. Thank you. So, they didn't have to spend all kinds of money. I'm not saying everyone needs to do it, but they understood what the marriage was about. 
what I think is often missing is the rings coming out, and even with, but we're, we're not understanding. I, I'm here to assist you to get to heaven. This is a call of God. And that's what the sacraments of vocation are. You are to serve the Lord in your vocation. It's not just you found a man or woman who you love. You're serving the Lord. It's not just that I get to wear a black shirt. I need to serve the Lord. And then, of course, we have anointing of the sick, which also ties into the end of life. When people are dying, the church is there once again. They accompany the whole way of a person's life. And if you think about where does it end properly, it actually ends back here at the altar. With a funeral liturgy, where if any of you have been to a funeral, who's been to a funeral here? All right. Everyone's been to a funeral. Who's been to a Catholic funeral? Alright, everyone's been to a Catholic funeral. Great, okay. So, oh, then I'm going to put you on the spot. What do we have at a Catholic funeral that I'm about to reference? Which I'll give you again. Are the signs of the other sacraments. I like the sound that just went off there. I was like, you know, someone like looking on Wikipedia. Yes. Okay, yes, the holy water, which is sprinkled on the casket at the beginning or the urn, okay, symbolizing the waters of baptism. He actually begins the rite. In the waters of baptism, so and so died with Christ. Sprinkle, sprinkle, sprinkle. Douse, douse, douse. A bunch of water is coming up. So that's what, what else? More? Oh, yes, thank you. Uh, I don't know where you saw that. So the casket does, it, it's, the casket itself doesn't symbolize anything, and it's not blessed with prison. Uh, what you may be thinking about is they'll often put a religious article on top of it, like a crucifix as a sign of the blessed body. But where did you hear that there was prison on the casket? Oh, okay. All right. Um, we liked your first answer. <laughs> yes. No, that is done actually at, at the at last rites that is done, not at the funeral. And the reason that you would not have the renewal of the baptismal promises at the funeral is the person's dead. Okay, they've already gone to the Lord. Uh, no, it's the truth that the person's dead at that point. So, but it, it, he, where he is right, is, and we'll get into that when we start uh, talk about anointing of the sick, if I also tie in last rites. Last rites, just a side comment, is not the anointing of the sick. Last rites is three sacraments that are given. Three receive us into the church. Three take us towards death. Three in are baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist. The three out are? That and one more. That's right, anointing. So it's anointing, communion received as viaticum, and confession if one can receive. It's interesting, they call those the sacraments of the transition or the sacraments when one is preparing to depart, right? So the church accompanies us in and out. But the other symbols, did anyone else have? Yes. Okay, so the community is gathered in prayer. They're receiving. Yes, David. 
believe the Paschal candle is also. The Paschal candle, which is we have in the chapel, is lit. The Paschal candle is always lit at baptism. The coffin is wheeled into the church, and sometimes if someone is a military uh, veteran, they have a flag over the coffin, right? The flag is not brought into the church, though. Well, it's not worn on the coffin. Gets to the church doors, the flag is folded. Into the church it comes. And I'm about to pull this thing off again. <laughs> into the church it comes. And they put a white pall over the top of it, signifying the white garment of baptism. This body that is in the coffin, this is why we bury the dead. This body in the coffin was baptized. They received the new dignity of the white garment. As they are now dying, and we've sprinkled the water, all the symbols of baptism, the candle that's usually right up front or off to the side, the coffin covered in white, the water that's sprinkled on it, all remind us of the sacraments and the person's membership in the church. It's very beautiful. But when we don't do that, we don't understand what's going on. We just sort of see these things and we're like, hey, I've been to a funeral before. So that's what I mean. The sacraments are central to every part of life. They are central to our faith. Put simply, they are the direct interventions into the world of God's power. That's why the church's life is centered around the sacraments. If you think about where the church, how the church engages, a lot of what the Catholic Church does is the celebration of the sacraments. If you go to an evangelical church or a, another Christian denomination, what oftentimes you'll find is they are centered primarily on the Word exclusively. Every once in a while they may celebrate the Eucharist too, but they're primarily focused on the celebration of the Word. We see the sacraments as these interventions because they're not man-made. We say we receive the sacraments. Now God uses these signs, which are very common, to demonstrate his closeness with his people. That's why he uses like bread, water, oil, those are the signs, so that it, just like he did in the Old Testament, where God came to the prophets and had different signs, the manna in the in the uh, the desert. This one's slightly painful, but circumcision. I'm going to mention that a sign of the Lord that there were things that were done to sort of signify that God was with an individual person or a group of people. So the word sacrament, very key here, so I want you all to know this. So I may come up to some of you and ask, where does the word sacrament come from? So I'm going to tell you, and then you're going to tell me when. The word sacrament comes from the Latin root, which means to holy or consecrate. So it references the idea of something being sacred. That's why we say the sacraments are sacred. They are holy. They should not be engaged in. That's why one doesn't receive willfully Holy Communion when one is not in the state of grace. It's not just a church rule. It's because one is not worthy to receive. We don't approach the Holy of Holies unless we're purified. 
The Jewish people, when they came, they, the priests would purify themselves before they offered sacrifice. You don't go before the Lord filled with filth. They recognized both bodies. It wasn't they were just having a shower. It was a ritual purification. Right, Lee? Yep. It, and it's continued. You know, if the temple were rebuilt in Jerusalem, sacrifice would begin immediately. The reason that it is the the, um, the Jewish faith right now is primarily through synagogues, right? The prayer, the, the houses of prayer, is the temple doesn't exist now. The mount does, but the, the temple as a whole. But it's because sacrifice was key to their worship. From the very inception of the Lord calling the, the Israelites. So they were consecrated to the Lord. When a priest was consecrated in the, in the uh, old law, go into Exodus, go into Leviticus, and see how they speak about they were dressed in a certain manner, they were washed, oil was poured on them, they wore the different parts that signify many of which we wear at Mass. Certainly the bishop does in the fullness of the priesthood. Now further, the word sacrament comes from the Latin word which is sacramentum. Okay? In ancient Roman, uh, in ancient Roman law and religion, here we're talking pagan, the sacramentum was an oath or vow that was rendered the swearer committed to be given to the gods. So they would make it a vow, basically, and if one did not follow through, per se, they would put money down, let's say, they would say, will you, uh, you know, commit to go with me on this journey? You say, I will be there. Then he doesn't show up. Whatever he committed by the sacramentum, the oath, would then be taken and given to the gods, would be offered to the gods. It was an oath tied. It was a religious-based oath. It was reference in a negative sense if a person violated it. And you can see how these words relate to what we're doing. We give an oath. We're in a relation with God. And we're dealing with something that is holy. So the root, going all the way back before any reference to Christianity, already had within it the concept of the idea of a religious offering. Then when we speak about it in reference to like ecclesiastical Latin, it speaks about being consecrated or holy. Now, what I want you to understand about uh, the sacraments is this. When we go to the Old, uh, Old Testament, we see covenants, right? So we can name a covenant here. We've got different covenants in the Old Testament. Anyone think of any? Maria. Okay, so what was the covenant with Noah? What was the what was the deal? He told Noah that he would not harm, or he would not do that again. He would not do that again. Right. He gave him a rainbow in the time of fidelity, and he would not. He would not ever kill, take out the entirety of the human race. The rainbow was a sign. What's another covenant? Yeah. Well, what was the Mosaic covenant? Um, with the, the commandments of Okay. 
receives the uh, commandments, and they were the Israelites being a treasured possession, right? He gives them the commandments. And what they do is a sign of that covenant. What they do right after, do you know? Well, they broke it. Well, they broke it. They violated immediately. Talk about that. Well, he's getting the covenant. They're violating it right down at the bottom of the hill, right? The first, the first commandment he gives is being violated at the very moment he's giving it. Ironic, isn't it? We do the same thing. Yeah, David. The covenant God makes for Abraham, Isaac, and David. Right. The covenant, so let's look at two of these. Let's look at Abraham and let's look at, at Moses for two. To make Abraham a great nation and to bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. And all peoples on earth would be blessed through him. That's what he promised Abraham. We're looking at Genesis 12 to 17 here. We're looking at the Abrahamic covenant. He says, so it's like three parts that he gives to Abraham. So it's one, he says, he will bless those who bless him, curse those who curse him. Second, he will give Abraham's descendants all the land from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates. Later, this came to be referred to as the promised land. Okay? Or the land of Israel. And then... He says Abraham will be the father of many nations and of many descendants to give the whole land of Canaan to his descendants. Now, that's what God promises. Now, in some covenants, now there's always a sign to stop. Sometimes he asks something. There are different kinds of covenants. Some where God just says, I will do this. And other ones he says, which are sort of like, I will do this if you do this. Here he says, the sign of the covenant. So Abraham did not need, yes, please. I say, the snipping. Here Abraham, that's right, was told what? Circumcision would be the permanent sign of the everlasting covenant with Abraham and his male descendants. That's where circumcision came in, right? And most of you probably knew that, but it was the sign of that covenant. Now, the Mosaic Covenant, as you rightly pointed out, was made with Moses and the Israelite people at Mount Horeb, okay, which is found in Exodus 19 to 24, in case you want to look it up. In this covenant, God promises to make the Israelites his treasured possession among all people and a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They, in turn, so this one requires something. So, the Abrahamic one, he gave a sign, but he just said, this is what I'm going to do. Here, he says, this is what I'm going to do, and this is what you're going to do. Here, he says, as per terms of the covenant, he gives Moses the Ten Commandments, found in Exodus 24. These are later uh, elaborated on more in the Torah, the other books of the... Uh, the Jewish scripture there. After he gives it, Moses comes down the mountain. So this is when they when they he's gone back up, okay? Because he's broken up. And what does he say to the to the? Do you accept this? And the people, as they always seem to, oh yes, we accept, we want it. He then sprinkles all the people with blood, right? He says, the blood of the sacrificial oxen 
is therefore sprinkled on the altar and on the people, signifying the seal of the covenant. So the point here is, Old Testament, the sacraments actually come right in the, in the way from the Old Testament. God was already engaging in outward signs, whether it be an altar, whether it be circumcision, outward signs that signified a relationship or a change in the relationship with God and his people. And you go through the Old Testament to the different covenants and you find that that is the way the Lord worked. He would come with a promise and he would signify it through something that man could see or do. Think about the sacraments. God comes with a promise and he signifies it through an action that something that man can see or do. This is how God desires to interact with his people. So it's very key in a study of the sacraments that the first thing we realize is this isn't invented by the church. I mean, how many people have heard like, oh, the sacraments were just invented by the church. You know, they take these seven things like that. This goes back, the idea of this way of interacting goes back to the very beginning of God's revelation to man. Consistently, he interacts the same way. In calling man to a deeper relationship, with deeper promises from him, and asks him to have signs of that relationship. He gives them signs to show that he is present with them, constantly interacting with his people to show love to them. Now, this gets to the crux of why we're having this talk, though. The sacraments, I believe, are completely misunderstood by most people who are Catholic in the United States. I'll say that. I won't say most Catholic. I don't want to tell it like most people don't. Most people do not seem, in my experience as a priest, to understand the sacramental theology that we hold, even in basic form. So here are the problems that I see. Number one, there are no particular order. People believe the sacraments are their right. What do I mean by that? I am due the sacrament. Every right comes with a duty. Okay? I mean, that's not just in religious terms. That's also in uh, normal relationship. You think about a family. You have a right to, let's say, eat and enter your house. You have a duty to respond to respect your family and do things there. And if you don't do that, you will lose your right. Don't believe me? Try it sometime. Go into your house and say to your parents, I don't plan to do a thing to help you. Just for the next three weeks, Bob. No reason, just trying out a new thing. And see how they respond. Something tells me they're going to say, you will do this because you're a member of our family. Interesting. In faith, since we're the member of the family of faith, we have both rights and obligations, but people only want to talk about their rights. So where you see this played out, baptism, people cutting in, but no desire at all to raise their children according to the faith, and they say, well, I want baptism. And you say, well, are you planning to be, I've never seen you before. Well, I don't go to Mass, never go to Mass. Okay, are you planning to start? No. But my family always gets baptized. You know, my, 
a line that I always hear, never use this line because it usually means the opposite. Every time, every time, without exception, someone has told me they're a founding member of the parish, it means two things. A, I've never seen him before. And B, they're usually too young to be the founding member. I'm like, because like you see like a 40-year-old, like I'm a founding member of this parish. It was founded in 1950. <laughs> you know, where were you exactly? Here, <laughs> diary. So, you, what happens is people, whenever people like build up their resumes, you can be sure that it's often fake. The same true in faith. And so, what happens here is people come in. They'll say, when you say, "Well, I can't allow you to baptize your child right now," what I'm willing to do is I'll meet with you if you'd like, or we can discuss this, whatever it may be, then they get angry. This is, are you saying to me that this is that you're denying me the right to the sacrament? You'll see it in marriage. People have no clue what it means to enter into a Christian marriage, or actually living contrary to it, and you're like, we're going to delay the marriage. They blow up at you. They don't say, thank you for saving me from entering into a marriage that may fail. Thank you for trying to help me to understand the sacrament better so I can live the marriage fully. You never get that. Because everyone thinks they have a right. I actually had someone recently tell me in a wedding prep that I was doing when I said to the person, you know, I think we need to delay the wedding. We need to work on a few things here. The person says, I didn't come to you to have you sort of tell me what I need to do to grow in faith. I thought you were just going to give me a few suggestions and that I, you know, and then I just moved on. And I said, "Well, then I'm sorry that you came here. That's not the way that, or understanding that we ever had with this. Sacramental preparation is not just you get to do whatever you want. There's a specific understanding of the sacraments. Do you have a comment, David? Yeah. Don't speak loudly. I don't know. But the, I'll repeat the question for anyone who's online. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of sacrament, a lot of sacramental child-centered, there's no attempt to catechize the adults, the parents, about what about the sacraments the children are receiving. So children were like, so after the children receive their first full communion, there is this like gap in catechesis until you get to the period of confirmation. And then another gap. So his yeah. comment was that mainly uh, parishes are focused on child-centered catechesis and nothing for parents, which is accurate. And I would say even the child-centered catechesis is lacking terribly. Yeah, yes. We have a problem that the, par the parents want the parents want sacraments for the children, but they themselves will not. But they themselves will not live the life of faith in the household. That's such a bad example to chop the children. Absolutely. Understand. That's why. Yeah. We, I also say that I think some of the parents also forget some of the promises that they made at the baptism. Well, that's a great point. So Lee said they forget promises. At baptism, a parent and godparent make are making promises. Right? Now before baptism, and we'll get into this next week, I'll say get uh, going through it all now. But the promise is the, the the parent says, I will raise the children in the faith. And many times, I don't think it's necessarily they forget the promises in some cases. I don't think they have any intention to do it, or they don't understand what it is to raise someone in the faith. 
you know, if I can be clear, if, if you think the faith is you go to Mass every Sunday, I mean, I, I, this is something I say over and over, that is not the essence of our faith. It is a central part of the faith, no doubt. But it isn't all just because you go to Mass. There's a lot more that goes into it. Good point. So that's the first problem. The second is a almost complete lack of understanding of what grace is and how grace is to operate. So we don't rely on grace, which I'll define here in a, in a couple minutes. It, we don't know what it is, so we're not like, as I said, well, it's going to have like God's life within you. Well, okay, yes, but what does that mean? You know, so we're taught these definitions. It's like, how many of you have heard like uh, this phrase? The Eucharist is the source and summit of the faith. How many have heard that phrase? Okay, so almost everyone. Now, how many of you can explain that phrase to me? No hands. See, that's the problem. We, we, we go into these catechesis classes. We have phrases that everyone's heard, and we'll use those phrases. Like, we'll go up to someone and say, the Eucharist is the source and summit. But if someone asks us, which is what people do who don't understand, hey, what does that mean? Oh, i got no idea. That's a problem. We've got to know what we're talking about. You know, and so when we understand what grace is, the essence of Christianity stems from that. We say that the life of heaven is open through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, that we participate in his very life through the sacrifice of Calvary represented on the altar, that we receive the body and blood of Christ, where we are incorporated in or in increase in the life of grace, which is the, the charity, the divine life, the way we should live in love with God. And it has a consequence in the way we live our lives. But if we don't know what grace is, guess what? We use it kind of like we say source and summit. We throw it around. Yeah, I receive grace at communion. And then you see a group of people. Imagine we're in a parish with 900 or 1,000 people. And a pandemic hits. And people go six months without receiving communion. And you're getting 25% of the people back. Uh, right now. And I would argue that when the dispensation is lifted, we will probably have lost between 25 and 30 percent of the people who were there pre-COVID. Now you may say, what's the problem there? The problem is the faith was indeed to begin with. I've actually met people who are saying, I'm really liking the online masses. First off, there's no such thing as online mass. <laughs> but why they say they like it is they say, well, it's kind of comfortable. I come down my PJs and I can tune into whatever priest across the country that I like because I like his homilies. And, you know, the dog's there and the family's there. And then we can go right from there. I don't need to battle in the parking lot. And I go right there and we have pancakes afterwards. Well, is, is there anything else you'd like? <laughs> The problem is when we get comfortable with the ways of faith, we think it goes back to the right. It's all about me. It's how I need to have it. Faith is about what God wants. So it doesn't mean that people in the middle of a pandemic 
should be going to mass, you know, when it's unsafe. That's not what I'm referring to. I'm referring to what goes underneath the reason we're not there. Is it really that we're in danger? Or is it that after a period of time, it's kind of like, I kind of like that I don't need to go to mass every week. And I like that there's no sin attached to it. Yes? Mass um, of life, you know, even, even the most beautifully celebrated live stream, mass, my offer live stream would, would not really be not really be sufficient from the standpoint that you miss out on receiving our, our Lord. But how many people be able to understand that when we've got like only thirty percent of the people who believe in the real presence and the seventy percent don't believe it because they don't know about it or they were told they were told something that was contrary to what the church teaches. Well, I think a lot, there are people who are unable to, to David's point was that there are people who are uh, missing Mass and they don't understand the Eucharistic belief, which is very true. Um, but further, there are people who genuinely cannot go to Mass right now, be unsafe. And there are people who also are scared. But there, I, there's another subsect that I don't think is small who actually are kind of thinking that this is kind of okay that we don't have that. And that's what I mean by that percentage of people who are going to sort of check out. The other thing that's problematic is we have people that are fearful of communion. You know, there was a document that just came out literally, I think it was today, uh, where the Vatican said we must get back as soon as possible to the celebration of Sunday Mass, as soon as it's safe. Like they were like, this condition that we're in is not sustainable. And I didn't read the whole thing because it just came out. But it's a good point. I mean, I served at a parish all summer. And after we got, I mean, the first week there were maybe, I don't know, 50 people came back. And it slowly crept up. Now the church seats 1,600 people. We crept up to 100 or maybe 125 at a mass. I mean, we crept up, and then we capped. I didn't see any more coming. So I'm asking, like, you know, now, I don't think they had 1,600 people necessarily coming to Masses, but the deacon who was there said to me, that's under 25% of what their regular Sunday Masses. So where are these people? Are they going to just come back as soon as the obligation is imposed? Is that the only reason we go to Mass? Maybe they, maybe they, to be fair, maybe they feel unsafe, maybe they all have comorbid conditions that we don't know. Could be a very sickly parish. But we, but my point is not to get on individual people's cases, but to ask about our own faith. What is the reason we're doing that? What is our understanding of grace? Third, the lack of faith that is required for the sacraments. There was a document written this year by the International Theological Commission about the reciprocity between faith and sacraments in the sacramental economy, which is very well written. And it says, now it references back, I'm going to read something from there. It says, already in 1977, the International Theological Commission, referring to the sacrament of marriage, warned of an existence of, quote, baptized non-believers, end quote, so think of that phrase, baptized non-believers, a paradox, okay, who demand the sacrament of marriage. I've seen this firsthand. 
The fact, they said, raises a profound new question. Since then, this reality has not ceased to grow and generate discomfort in the celebration of the sacraments. Moreover, the problem is not limited exclusively to the sacrament of marriage, but embraces the entire sacramental economy, which means all of the sacraments, that you see the same thing going on. In particular, in Christian initiation, whereby its very nature is a reciprocity between faith and the sacrament should be sealed, concern and uneasiness is often detected. Meaning that people don't really know what they're doing when they receive these sacraments. Take people who are getting confirmed. How many times do you meet someone they have no clue what's going on in 14? Right? Many people. Right? Same with baptism. Not infrequently going forward, this document says, Pastoral agents received the request for the reception of the sacraments with great doubts about the faith intention of those who demand them. I love the word there. Remember what I said about the faith we're not requesting, we demand. They use that phrase in the document. Because they commit. You will marry me. I've been at this church. You will come at midnight and do the, you know, and perform the wedding on a beach. Well, we don't perform weddings at midnight. We're not going to do it on a beach. Well, then I'm leaving the Catholic Church. Whoa. Really? I mean, are these like ultimatums with guns? I mean, not literal guns, but, you know, like spiritual guns place that you will do this? Yes, that's what people do. Many others believe they can live their faith without fully sacramental practice. I hate people who don't go to Mass all the time. People who never go to confession. People who don't teach their children anything about the faith. Even if they are going to Mass all the time. You know, the number of times you get people who are like, well, I go to Mass every Sunday. And as Archbishop uh, uh, Charles Chaput said in a wonderful writing, he had, and, and we are illiterate in our faith. Which is oftentimes what we are, right? That's what we're addressing here in this. Which they consider the sacraments optional and freely available. So in other words, I, I'm like a vending machine. What can I give you? You don't need to put a thing in. I'm just here for you at all. Well, that's your job, Father. See that? See what all comes out? It's I need and you must give. With different but widespread spread accents, there is a danger from two extremes. Either a ritualism, the boy of faith, that's people who go to Mass every Sunday, but don't do squat for the church and really don't believe. That's ritualism, right? Do the ritual over and over, devoid of faith. Or on the other side, a lack of interiority or, or by social custom and tradition. So we don't have anything, but my family's Catholic, right? I'm going to get married in the church because that my grandmother wants me to. I'm going to receive uh, confirmation because my parents told me to. Does this sound like a reality that we see over and over playing out regularly in parishes, right? It's customs that go into this. Or, on the other side, the danger of privatization of the faith. Don't you dare judge me. You don't know where I'm at. That's another one, right? How dare you come and tell me that I'm not ready for marriage. You don't know me. Right? And my faith is private. 
reduced to the inner space of one's own conscience and feelings. Because I feel the Lord. Well, how about the opposite? I stopped going to Mass of that parish because I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel anything when I was there. Oh, it's all about feeling stuff, right? Well, or I didn't like the homilies there, so I just moved on. Oh, okay, so the job of the priest is to make you happy with the homilies. In both cases, the reciprocity between faith and sacraments is harm. The sacraments, as we'll come to understand, are given by the Lord, but if we don't have faith, they are they do not operate for the end that they are supposed to within the heart. If you get married in the church, for instance, and you do not plan to live a Christian lifestyle, whatever that may be, you are validly married, which means a marriage took place. We're not saying it didn't take place, but the grace of the sacrament is not operating. You're not functioning in the relationship of the Lord that allows you to experience what God desired to give you. Any gift, if you need an image, because sometimes people are like, give me an image. Okay, I'll give you an image. Okay, did you ask? Well, you didn't ask, but I'm assuming you asked. But you're speaking up here. Bring it down. I'm bringing it down. Okay? So if I give you a gift, let's say, I say, here's a gift for you, JP. Actually, I have one of these in my car. A friend of mine gave me, I'm realizing it as I speak to you, a friend of mine gave me a Christmas gift about 10 years ago. It is still wrapped in my trunk. <laughs> I am realizing it as I speak to you, and I will read the model. I may bring that gift in and open it next week so we can all see together what it is I got 10 years ago. Okay? But the point is, that is what it is like when one is not disposed to the sacraments. A gift is given that is not open. We are not receiving what was intended to be given. We have received it, but it isn't functioning. I don't know what that gift is, and I sure hope it isn't food. <laughs> it's literally wrapped. I know a paper, it's in some Harry Potter paper. I'll try to bring that in for uh, next week. I hope he's not tuning in right now. <laughs> we may have to do that off camera just in case there's, he ever tunes in. He's like, wait a second. I'm going to get Oh, there we go. See, that's what he's going to do to our friendship. All right. So, the, but that's what is supposed to happen. It's a reciprocity between faith and belief. Lack of the interior life that roots the love of the Lord in the sacraments, almost as if they are just events. The sacraments are supposed to be encounters, is the last thing. I mean, I could go through many of them, but those five things I wanted to point out to you. Number one, lack of people thinking sacraments are their right. The lack of understanding of grace. The lack of faith required for a sacramental belief. The robotic living out of the faith, and then the lack of the interior life. Okay, the last thing we're going to discuss in the last 10 minutes is what are the sacraments? We gave a definition, but now we're going to sort of go deeper. 
The definition that we can work off of now how the church defines the sacraments, the most common one that you've probably heard, is an outward sign instituted by the Lord that bestows grace, right? All of you heard that definition of grace. We're going to pull this apart. An outward sign. We recognize that the sacraments have a visible and an invisible reality. A reality open to the human senses, but grasped in its God-given depths with the eyes of faith. So, for instance, we can see the Eucharist, but it just looks like bread. But it is not bread. And so, it's not just we see the Eucharist and it is or it isn't something. It is, it is the Lord or it isn't. Either we have the most expensive bread box in Fredericksburg sitting over in the chapel there, or that is a tabernacle. I hope it gets me. I hope it gets me. That's a wireless one. Father, don't worry about it. The microphone on the camera is picking up everything. So I don't even need to wear this. Not really. Oh, so why? It's not being recorded, though. Yeah, because it's a podcast. Fine. I'll keep wearing it. I will suffer suffer through this. (laughs) That's my trip over it. I'm trying to find out so when parents hug their children for example the visible reality you see is the hug the invisible reality of the hug conveys love going back to the example I used of the ring an engagement that's what's really being symbolized by the person I don't want to attack people who are going to give engagement rings the point is that a person is saying, I'm willing to give a large investment as I'm willing to give you my life. Right? We cannot see the love behind those symbols. Though sometimes we can see the nurturing effect that occurs in the child or in the person receiving the gift from the parent or the boyfriend or girlfriend. The visible reality we see in the sacraments is their outward expression the form they take, and the way in which they are administered and received. So you think of any sacrament, confession, the outward sign, the stole of the priest, the idea that a penitent comes in either to a confessional or an outdoor, nowadays, an outdoor chair, and that there's a, a mechanism of the sacrament. You know, the prayer that's prayed over a person, anointing of the sick, the anointing of oil on the different parts of the body, the head, the hands, and you can also anoint the, the injured part of the body, but traditionally it's just the head and the hands. Um, that's what we mean by an outward sign. Second, instituted by Christ. When we go through each of the sacraments, I will show you in the scriptures where the sacraments are found. That we take them, we're not masters of the sacraments. We cannot change them. We cannot change the name of the sacraments. We cannot change the number of the sacraments. These are divinely given. So we say instituted by Christ, that he ordered them. The clearest one, obviously, is baptism. Where he orders his disciples to go out and baptize. And we see in Acts of the Apostles that they followed that mandate. Now grace. Grace comes from the root word meaning free. 
a word everyone loves, right? People come like, you want to go to dinner? Is it free? So the next time, is this a grace? You know, are you going to pop that word in there? Are you gracing me the meal? No. But it means free because it comes from the idea of what God is doing here. It means a free gift of God that takes different forms. Sanctifying grace is most spoken about. When we speak about the sacrament, that is what we're primarily talking about. That is, when grace is used, is actually different kinds of grace. But the one we most speak about is sanctifying grace. Now, so you're not confused, because this is very key to me, that you're not just getting terms. Because that's the problem with the way faith is taught. Okay, memorize, write this term down. You do need to know what the terms mean, because that's sort of the, the vocabulary we use. But sanctifying grace means that a person is changed. Sanctifying means made holy. That in the sacrament, one of the graces that is given, the primary grace is one in which the receiver is made holy. Or there is an increase in holiness through the reception of that sacrament. So you can think baptism, the first time that you receive grace. That's why we say, and, you know, original sin taken away, personal sin taken away. One receives sanctifying grace. People just spit these things out. One becomes a member of the church. But it means when we say sanctifying grace, one is actually receiving the life of God and is made holy. So a common question, are you living as a holy person? Right? A baptized person should live differently. Sanctifying, as I said, is most spoken about as the primary grace of the sacraments, which is the infusion or increase of the life of God. Or said differently is charity in the soul. Charity is the love of God that is in the soul. We say that God is love. So we can say this, God is grace. When referencing sanctifying grace, because that is what goes into us. He is, in fact, the charity he gives us. Because we don't divide God up. Now, in sanctifying grace, the invisible reality we cannot see is God's grace. His initiative in redeeming us through his death and resurrection of, this, of his son is the means of this grace, the restoration of our communion with God. His initiative is called grace because it is a... We're going to learn. See, this is how we're going to see. Here's the class of it, friends. Remember what I said to you about the wet. See, this this is the crux of the way we're going to learn this. What do we say about source and summit? Everyone heard it. Nobody knew it, right? What do we say about grace? Everyone can say it's you know God's life, a little piece of God. We just said grace means free. A free act of suffering. He wasn't compelled into it. You see how these words relate. A free act of us entering into communion with God. Sanctifying grace is us participating in the free act of a relationship of the beloved. God freely offered himself. We freely respond to God. 
Grace is given as a free act of God by a, by a person or a group of people and freely responding. You see how the very theology of grace was understood with that little piece that's never taught to people. They just say, changes our understanding that it all connects through this corpus of where we go through and we understand this is a relationship that I have with God. His initiative is because it is free and a loving gift he offers his people. And he shows us his favor and will for our salvation by his act on the cross, which is our means to grace. There is no grace without God offering himself to the Father in atonement for man's sin, original sin. Our response to that grace of God's initiative is itself a gift of God, another act of God, we call that actual grace, which we can imitate Christ in our lives. And the last thing I'll say is there are sacramental graces, which are distinctive graces imparted by each of the sacraments to help us from receiving them to live a certain way once we receive it. So, for instance, this, this sacramental grace of like confession is the recognition and having contrition in the heart for sin. The actual grace, which is the movement of God towards the sacrament, would be like a person saying, I'm going to go to confession. I'm kneeling down here at confession. And the sanctifying grace is what is the sin taken away and the restoration of a person, say they were in grave sin, to the life of grace again. So we see a free act that is given whereby God allows us to enter into a relationship with him. And he allows for each of the sacraments to be a bridge to another way of understanding God's life. Okay, we'll stop there. Any questions? Quickly, we have time for one if anyone has it. Otherwise, hearing none, we'll close with a prayer. Name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Next week, baptism.